Probably the best school radio station in the world. This is Bry Radio. Proudly sponsored by the BPA. Hello, everybody. We've got a very full studio today. Can I introduce... Uh, well, actually, let's go through the room, giving a very quick profile of who everyone is. I'm going to start with Julia on my right. Okay, I'm Julia Hales. And uh, I had uh, three boys at Branston. And two of them are here today, Connor and Monty Brandt, who have done talks. And uh, I've also been talking, but my, the thrust of my talk is that schools need to do a huge amount more about environmental education because at the moment there's not nearly enough. And effectively they're educating children about the past, but not for the future that they're about to embrace. And so I've gone through a lot of things that they should be, should be doing. And I'm John Elkington, and um, I've worked with Julia in the distant past, I think quite successfully. And um, I was also uh, at Bryanston back in the 1960s. It's changed a lot since then. My message today was very simple. We've looked at the climate change and biodiversity loss and agendas like this as risks and, and, and problems. They certainly are that, and they're going to get much worse. But they're also opportunities. So again, to underscore what Julia says, I do think that all schools should have careers advisors who can help people get into this space if they want to, uh, quite apart from other teachers needing the background as well. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, my, my name is Giles Davis. Uh, I wasn't at Branston, but have three children here right now, so, so deeply ingrained. Um, I, I founded a business called Conservation Capital about 20 years ago. Uh, we're interested in the um, connections between commercial business, commercial finance, and 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 conservation or restoration of nature we work all over the world, um, uh, including in the UK, happily. Um, and yeah, Branston, in some ways, a business, and uh, like almost all businesses in the world, uh, it can do some good things um, for 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 natural capital and the and the natural environment. And uh, um, it's uh, it's great to be be around all, all the other guests here today and, and what they've been talking about in that regard. Uh, good afternoon, I'm Connor, uh, one of Julia's sons, and I was actually at Bryanston um, a couple of years ago and left in, in 2013, um, so it's, it's fun to be back, and talking about my favourite topic, um, the circular economy, or rather how we have a linear economy through bad design, and how design is actually the solution to the problem as we redesign our economy to be more circular, and therefore so that we can live in harmony with nature. So I'm the, the other son here, another son here, uh, also went to Bryanston a uh, bit, bit more recently, uh, but still about five years ago now. Uh, just graduated from Bristol University, um, did a four-year master's course in innovation, um, and I've just recently set up a company called People Power um, and done a TED Talk. And the theme of both of those two things and the end of my talk today um, has been explaining the potential of, of cryptocurrency to not just be speculative instruments for gambling um, and uh, illegal activity, but how the tools and, and the ecosystems and the underlying technologies um, can actually be used in support of regeneration and in support of creating new systems that can create a radically better future in hopefully exponential time period is what we need to save ourselves so yeah thanks monty so um as you can see we've got a cross range of uh, different specialities here but what's more we've got cross generations we've got um um john and julia who've been in this uh, field for 30 years now and the start at the start were pioneers were, were you ever called activists or lone voices was it a huge challenge to um 
spark the, the, this? The simple yeah. answer is yes. And when I first started to engage business in the 1970s, they would assume that anyone who came from the environmental angle was a com communist. And I'm, I'm not joking. I mean, they really were uh, believing that anyone interested in the environment was actually anti-business. And I've, I think we've managed to disprove that over time. Um, and actually, I had to say that my very first radio interview was for Radio Derby, and I was trying to explain that uh, environmentalists were not long-haired hippies. Um, and I said long-haired hippies with open-toed sandwiches. But actually, I meant sandals. Um, but the point, anyway, was well made, because at the time, everybody assumed that you were a complete crank if you worked in the environmental sector. And what John and I did was really push it into the mainstream and show that it was something that everybody could engage with. And that, that really worked. So that, that was a, a, a really exciting period of, of seeing companies wake up and uh, consumers wake up. And at what point do you think the Joe public sort of really grab, grabbed hold of the, of the issue and took it into their own hands? Or is it, are we still in that process? Well, I think there's been a huge change. And I mean, it's difficult because uh, I don't want to take credit for it all because John and I produced this book, The Green Consumer Guide, and it came out in 1988 and it sold over a million copies worldwide. And I think if we hadn't written it, somebody else would have done. But it really put the idea on the table that everything we do and everything that we buy has an impact on the environment. And therefore, we need to not only change it because of the individual impact, but because of the message that it sends through to business. And we then started advising lots of businesses on what they should and could be doing environmentally. Do you want to add to that? No, just very quickly, I think a lot of big companies at that stage were running scared because they had been used to thinking that the pressure would come from regulators, from policymakers, politicians, and so on. And suddenly it was coming from consumers. And what ordinary people often forget is that one vote or one uh, sort of trend in the consumer uh, uh, reports or whatever can really catch attention in, 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 in business. This stuff goes in ways, I think, where we're currently at a down wave, funnily enough, but uh, the next one's going to come through and it's going to be very much more powerful than the previous ones. Charles, I know you want something to add something there. Yeah, just it's a, good, it's a great question, uh, Emily, and I think it depends on your your the definition of, of Joe Public. Uh, we do an awful lot of work in Africa where um, the impact of climate change, environmental degradation, is 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 um, is very in your face. And ironically, I would say that the discussion about um, changing attitudes, changing practices, we find it easier in poor countries uh, than in developing ones. Um, as I was saying earlier, the developing ones is happening rapidly, particularly in the corporate space. Um, you're seeing seeing re real, real attitude change quite quickly. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I remember when we we, we co-founded a movement called Rewilding Europe, and we, we arrived in Europe ten years ago uh, in the European space, talking to con you know, in countries where there's the strong sort of social security networks, uh, which people in Africa don't have. And, and saying we were interested in business and the environment. And that we were, even then, just 10 years ago, they'd look at you going, conservation, business, those are not things that, that go together. Um, when you talk about creating businesses that are based on nature, good for nature in Africa, that create livelihoods, it's a, it's a much, much, much easier conversation to have, ironically. So looking at Connor and Monty, who are the, the sort of out of uni, the new, the young leaders and business leaders of tomorrow what is the picture looking like for you guys is in this is everyone taking this on board or is this still something you're having to push i think we're seeing 
you know a huge amount of, of of interest i think it's becoming second nature to a lot of um people of, of our generation um and of course the protest movements have largely been led by by young people as well um and i think it's yeah becoming a core part of of what even even friends who i typically wouldn't think about um being into sustainability they're going off to do masters and uh, in this kind of direction because people know that this is where the future is going so yeah um, so I, mostly very positive. We are, you know, we are heading in the right direction and the pace of change is is accelerating. Um, of course, you know, I must caveat that with we're still not doing anywhere near enough. Um, people are, are around the world, um, you know, quite rightly as indiv- quite understandably even as individual consumers this doesn't always rank on the top of people's priority lists um you know especially when people are in situations that arguably trump the danger of the environmental crisis so it's you know it's all very well saying well aren't you worried for the future but there are billions of people alive on the planet today that worry about next week and when you're worrying about starving next week you can't worry about the future and so you know in some ways we have this problem that you know climate change and these environmental issues are global problems that are happening right now and because they're global problems and because they're happening right now we need everyone on the planet on board um but we also can't expect people who are in tough struggling situations um to be as aware or on board with these issues or able to act um, because they've got other priorities. So in part, to tackle environmental problems, we also need to look at tackling the gross wealth inequality that we have on the planet and the fact that we have, you know, millions, if not billions of people living in in poverty and unable to contribute uh, fairly or well to the um, protection of the planet. Well, it's interesting. This afternoon or this morning, even we we turned, we had um, lectures given by you guys, and then we uh, through to pupils from other schools, and we asked them, didn't? Well, Julie, you asked them a question. What? Put your hand up if you rank the environment as top of your priority list, and uh, how many? I wasn't. I was sitting at the back, but how many do you think put their hands up? Well. I think we were all a bit shocked because we were expecting everybody to put mm. their hand up and that wasn't the case. And mm. so, so yeah. I don't know, what do you think, about two-thirds? But mm. Yeah, or maybe yeah. even... I mean, closer yeah. to half. Yeah, yeah. closer to half. I mean, so it was actually rather shocking yeah. and a, a bit disappointing, particularly since they were here um, for Green Thing, but maybe... Well, even, well, I was talking, this goes back to what we were ju- you were just saying, um, I was just talking, I was talking to some of the Martha and said, you know, why didn't you put your hand... They, I, they, I said, did you put your hand up? And they said, no. I said, why not? I said, well, there's a war in Ukraine going on, there's famine in Yemen going on. I said, oh, okay, well, w- what about if, if climate change is actually sort of the, the stem of these issues, would you then put your hand up? And, and I think there is a sort of lack in the, in, the, in the connections that the people are making between these problems that actually they're seeing them as unique individual problems, not as one big interconnected problem. And I think that's, the sh- that's a real that's a shame. Yeah, I don't know how we can... Do that. I think part of it, part of it as well, is I think maybe when people hear about climate change, they think, oh, some you know, a bit more bad weather, or you know, a, a couple extra worse hurricanes. When I think it's difficult to really visualize the total planetary impacts that this could have in terms of collapse of all of our systems and that total chaos that it could unfold. You know, I think visualizing that, if you do, when you do understand the full extent of that, there's also the tendency to be a bit despondent and be like, you know, that's pretty depressing. 
pressing and that can also immobilize kind of action so i think what i quite like to do is to to really help you know make sure people can actually visualize how terrible how terrible it could be but then also provide that positive vision for going this is the future that we could build and this is the future that we could work towards and i think that it, it can provide a quite um, powerful kind of mobilization force because you're seeing the scariness of it, but also providing a positive future to actually to work and build and fight fight towards. So I think that maybe can be a more powerful psychological kind of um, way to look at it. Um, I mean, John, in your book, you talk about systemic changes and they're obviously um, the exponential changes needed to cause systemic changes. People don't recognize, um, or people, for them, it's foreign, these ideas of new... I don't know, are we talking about new world order or is it more simple of sort of more smaller scale? But is, is that the problem that people are, uh, don't want to go into the unknown? I think most of us don't like going into the unknown most of the time. I just want to say a couple of things. One is um, Emily and Bella also in the studio. Thank you so much for putting this event together with your team uh, at Branson. I talked to quite a number of the students and teachers who are here today from different schools and they really appreciated being uh, part of this. I do think the answer to that question had much more to do with the way that the question was framed than actually what people uh, uh, believe is important and why they were here. But your question about the world order, you know, we've all grown up, regardless of our age, in a world that dates from the end of the Second World War, where the Bretton Woods and Marshall Plan and these sorts of things set the conditions of a economic order, which has worked broadly quite well, not on global warming and things like that, but broadly for most people in the developed world very well. And that's now failing. That, that, that order is starting to come apart. And to your question, that's going to spook people. They already feel it in their bones. That, that's where some of this populism is coming. It's not the only uh, answer, but people know the world is going to change. And the problem is our political leaders are not yet fit for purpose. The, try and think of a... Um, a political leader around the world who really understands this new world that we're moving mm -hmm. into and is addressing it in an inclusive way, in a positive way, and so on. They are very few and far between. They tend to be at city level rather than at, say, sort of national level, but they're going to come because we have no option but to get them into those positions very fast indeed. And what about product design, um, Connor? Is there going to be a new... I mean, you talk, you talk about 3D printing, this, the technology of 3D printing, anything can be printed anywhere in the world. Will we move away, do you think, from the, um, the um, supply chain that we produce stuff in China and then send it back to the West? Or do you think it, and, or, and do you think that 3D printing will enable it all to be produced in one place? Or, I mean, how, how quickly do you think the circular economy will be adopted in that regard? Gotcha, completely understand. So... I think that 3D printing as a technology has its 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 limitations. It's not ideal for mass manufacturing, considering most products are produced in incredibly high volumes. Um, 3D printing is not the future solution for all manufacturing, although it does fit some. It does do some tasks very well. So if you want to make uh, complicated uh, one-off objects. You can do that really well. And it's actually reduced the cost and material efficiency of making high-end precision um, engineering equipment like 
turbine blades, etc. Um, but for more mass-produced goods, um, 3D printing isn't the answer. But something that you touched on there is um, localized supply chains. Is that over the last, um, well, really since actually the industrial revolution, the combination of industrializing while having colonial powers is that we worked out that it was cheaper to make things the other side of the world because we could treat the people the other side of the world worse than we would treat our own people back home. We could pay them less, we could give them worse working conditions, and therefore we could exploit them to create cheap products. And that's how our entire uh, manufacturing system is set up at the moment. Um, of course, this has its benefits for the consumers in the in the rich countries, but it has its its negatives. It means that all of the product is consumed in the places with the wealth, but it's all made in the places without the wealth. So you need all of the resources required to make an object over here, and then all of those resources go to waste over here. But of course, in a circular economy, you want to connect those two locations and the closer you connect them, the better, the more efficient your system will be. So that actually incentivizes people to move towards a supply chain where their products can be made, consumed, and remanufactured in the you know, local environments in, in their own country as opposed to having an international supply chain because it will be more efficient and lower cost. Um, and it actually also fits into the defense picture that we have at the moment is that both on a national defense level, um, resource security, and on a company level, um, keeping ownership of your material throughout its supply chain gives you greater security and you're less you know, vulnerable to changes in market price or market demand for your raw materials. Um, so I think that is a transition that we are already seeing happen, but it is a transition that is going to accelerate um, exponentially. But with the long-term uh, and short-term view, of, so with the product, you're thinking of the long, the short-term gain of someone buying that product, and you talked about service, the, the opportunity of service-based products. Um, it goes back to sort of politics and the short and long-term view of what uh, governments in the moment, we, well, in the UK, obviously, it's for... I don't know how many years, four years, four year to four year terminally like four year election cycles. Whereas somewhere in China, like in China, autocratic government, they have long term plans and long term governments. Is there? I mean, how when it comes to solving issues such as climate change, which is a long term phenomenon, and the changes we have to make will have to be spec'd out in the long term. Is there an almost advantage to having an autocratic government where you don't have to worry about being popular, but actually have to can just make the change for the future? I'd like to chime in on this. A absolutely. It's it's one of the biggest, It's it, it actually it's highlighted one of the biggest fatal flaws in our democracy. Democracy is great and is exactly what we want. And, you know, I'm not envious of the people living under the Chinese system, but there is something that it demonstrates, the ability to have long-term planning. You know, they put in the one-child policy um, and they have pre prevented an extra billion or several billion Chinese people as a result of that. Um, they put that policy in back there. Obviously, it had some horrible um, unintended and maybe even intended consequences. But the logic of thinking we're going to have a problem in, in 20, 30 years and we're going to start addressing that now, that is an example that I can't see any other Western democratic government taking the lead on, whether it be our expansion into space, our dealing with you know environmental issues, all of these things, we operate on too short a term cycle.
Yeah, there's um, there's an interesting example in Africa of that. Um, one country that's, that's that there are fundamental question marks and and issues around the um, functioning of democracy and and and, and human rights. Uh, but one, um, in fact, where a lot of I think your well, this country's current prime minister has just come from. Um, and is the darling of the donors and is doing some incredible work uh, around environmental progression is Rwanda, um, which is, is not a democratic state. Um, but, but the Kagame, the president there, in, in, you know, on the one hand, lots of question marks. On the other hand, a very, very progressive leader. But just, just uh, another point is in, in, in listed corporations, which I think is, is, is a sort of similar issue where you get a lot of short-termism where the chief executives of listed corporations are constantly forced by the markets to focus on short-term share price movements. And it makes it very difficult to build um, long-term value programs, particularly around this issue where there's a lot of investment required, which can be expensive and, uh, and, and may not reflect immediately in the value of a share price. So I, I have some, some experience with being on the boards of public companies, and, and, and it's a similar issue. Um, you, you don't often get leaders of, 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 of public companies who can just do what they like for a very long period of time. And therefore, you get this short termism, at least in that aspect as well. Um, there's a lot of examples where that's changing. But, um, mm. but yeah, um, Rwanda is a, a, a very progressive country on the face of it at the moment in this regard. I think value is something, John, do you have something to add there for? Well, no, just uh, very quickly. Um, I, I think autocracies and tyrannies ultimately either implode or explode. And mm. you look at Putin's regime at the moment, and it's, it's acting out of desperation in many ways. They may present it in many different ways. So if China continues down its current path, I don't think that will be politically sustainable. So um, although there are short-term, medium-term advantages to having people who can think long-term and to some degree act, if they don't have the popular and democratic support for what they're doing, that's not going to last. Um, either. There's one other thing that I just wanted to say. I think what we're starting to see in democratic societies is because governments and politicians are being relatively slow to address these big systemic crises, business leaders are being asked to step up in their stead. Uh, and Giles, you've, you've seen evidence of this. And in, in some ways, it's great when they do, and they start to talk about biodiversity, they talk about climate change or soils, health or whatever. But they're not democratically elected, and do we really want these people running our societies? We need healthy democracies. At the moment, we haven't particularly got them, mm. uh, and I think that's something we've all got to collectively work towards. Mm. Well, I think anyone else got anything to? Well, I was just going to say, I think in terms of business leaders having a more can having a long-term vision, Elon Musk kind of springs to mind. He always, from the beginning, had the kind of 10, 20-year plan um, to disrupt the electric vehicle market, and he's done that. But it, it does also raise that question of, do we want uh, an economy and society that's run by the billionaires? Um, and he does now have a huge influence and sway and sometimes has quite controversial opinions. <laughs> he may be an expert on electric cars and rockets, but that doesn't mean his political you know, opinions should be... Uh, you know, the only ones we listen to is recent takeover of Twitter. It'll be very interesting to see where he takes that because I think social media has such a huge impact on society. And I think that's an interesting question of governance as well, of who controls those algorithms. Should it just be an elite group of shareholders or even single CEO who, sh who controls an algorithm that it potentially influences billions of people, the largest hierarchies in human history? Um, 
you know, could we create systems that are more democratically governed and controlled that actually help run these these networks and these social media uh, and these kind of digital protocols that kind of run our lives? Um, how can we redesign those uh, that, that do incorporate democratic values um, and and are have a regenerative kind of net positive uh, positive externality kind of mindset? Um, so I think that's a really fascinating question as well. I think that's really interesting. To wrap up, I'm going to ask one last question to each of you. What would you, obviously we're in a school now, what would you, what sort of one single advice would you each give um, to a pupil going, or a young leader going into the, this world uh, to, well, advice, yeah, what would you give, what would you tell Yeah, and actually if I can add to that, um, I think that there's a degree of resilience that's really needed in this field and I'm sure you found yourself in sort of a depressive state sometimes and you're just you're very frustrated and you feel you can't get through to people. Maybe you could give us a bit of advice on how you get through that. So shall I start on, on that? So um, to start in terms of the, the, the one piece of advice is that, um, that I think that whatever it is that you do, environmental issues will be a key part of that and it's working out how you can be trying to create the sort of future that you want to live in rather than that you're trying to reduce the harm that is being done because at the moment it's so focused on we're going to go on doing what we've always done and we're going to make it a little less bad and I think it's got to completely flip that around and say let's look at the vision, let's look at what we want to create and let's create that within whatever business that we're in and that each of those individuals leaving school as part of the school can really in themselves make a huge difference as as they are. And in a way that answers your second question about being positive and optimistic. It's really easy and I certainly started my speech with quite an apocalyptic sort of picture of what's happening in this world at the moment and it is really, really frightening but of course, so if you look at that sort of bigger level, it feels like it's so big that we can't do anything about it. So you have to sort of be aware of that. And then maybe that's your motivation. But then you have to come down to you as an individual and just say, what can I do personally and how can I make a difference and look at the successes? And and for me, that's what carried me through, because I was really excited about the fact that we got some of these big companies sitting up and taking notice. We got, you know, one really big thing, the, the, the ozone layer that was a real issue when we started, you know, some really positive things started happening, partly because of what we were doing. So, you know, take take heart, we thankful. can make a difference. <laughs> So, uh, one thing. Uh, well, the first thing out of two uh, would be, Emily, you started off by talking about the generational span in this studio. Uh, and I, I was 73 a couple of days ago, and I actually feel the next 10 to 15 years of my working life will be by far the most exciting, challenging, and politically dangerous of, of, of my entire career. That's the first thing. The second is education is the single most important investment that we all make and societies make in particular. So to the question of what I would say to young people, have fun and try and find things that feed your curiosity and that are interesting because only if you have that sense of real engagement will you stick with it. Will you have the stamina? Will you go through the periods of pessimism and depression and all the rest of it? They're out there. You will have them. Uh, but just r really make sure you find the right people and do the right thing. Giles. Yes, I think um, I'm not going to say anything different. I think, um, firstly, be aware that it's going to be a daily reality of your life um, and, and almost certainly professionally as well as, as just part of your, your wider life. Um, and, and coming back to the apocalyptic thing, I, I'm also aware of a lot of data that's scary. Um, but 
uh, I'm also aware of a lot of incredible success stories and progression that's being made. Um, so I think um, where you can try to learn, um, re recognize that that learning will probably make a difference to, to both your personal life and your professional life. And, and be aware that it, it's not all doom and gloom. And, and, and really, it's that generation that's going to make the difference. Uh, and it's, it's, it's fantastic to see you know, two young men in the, in the studio today um, doing something that's, that's very relevant, um, very positive, very exciting. And, and I have no, no doubt that professionally, you will, you will emerge uh, amongst the leaders in, in, in business life in, in the next 10, 10 or 20 years. So uh, as much of the rest of you as possible, tr try to follow in whatever way you can. Well, that's lovely to hear. And thank you very much. And I guess to say that I'd love to join as many other people who, who want to come join and build this new future as possible. We need everyone. Um, and, and like John says, be curious. Um, and like I sometimes say, go down the rabbit hole. There's so much information you can find online to kind of spark your curiosity. And I sort of do sometimes feel like I'm always on to the next thing. But actually what that does is it gives you a, you know, a broader perspective. And um, yeah, just, just go down the rabbit hole of, of, of these kind of topics and, and see where you end up and not worry about it but know that you're being a part of building something better and and for the next generations and for you and it's going to be more fulfilling as well well and i'm i'm going to say my my favorite thing which is that big these big environmental problems can feel very scary and, and intimidating and a sort of existential threat and you know knowing that it's going to dominate the rest of my lifetime is is quite overwhelming um, but I look at it and then I reframe it as this is actually a massive opportunity. When something's not working right, um, you have the opportunity to fix it and to make it work right and be rewarded for doing so. And the bigger the problem, the more that society and the world will reward you from fixing it. Um, you know, if humanity does survive, the next generation of billionaires will be the billionaires that helped us save the planet. Um, and so, you know, it doesn't just have to be about survival. It can be about your own success too, which can be, you know, can be very motivating. And if you are going to get emotional, don't get upset, get angry. This isn't your fault, um, but you can change uh, the way that the world works. Um, but you've got to put pressure on the, on the people who are pulling the strings and therefore you've got to use that, uh, energy and motivate for change. Thank you so much. Everyone. That was quite, um, that's, that's amazing. And thanks so much for, for being here today, coming all the way from your day jobs and giving up a day to inspire young people. Um, and I and hope, and, yeah, I hope maybe we've taught you something. I don't know. Um, but. And well done, Emily and Bella. Fantastic. Yes, thank you very much for having us. Thank you. Probably the best school radio station in the world. This is Bry Radio. Proudly sponsored by the BPA.